0: James chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. It's a good place to start. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the preeminency of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it will outlive the heavens and the earth We're grateful to have the privilege of building our lives upon your word, Lord. We're grateful that it doesn't change from one day to the next. We thank you that it will accomplish all the purposes it's sent to accomplish, Lord. And we're we're grateful, Lord, that you use it to fashion us and make us more like Christ, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us now as your children to open up our hearts to you, to allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to encourage us, and to redirect us, and comfort us, and to exhort us, Lord. Anything that you want to speak to us about, your servants are listening, and your children are waiting for you to speak, and to help us, Lord, to learn all the things you want us to learn, and to apply these things, God. We thank you for raising up this, this writer, Lord, to say the things, and write the things that he wrote to us, inspired by your spirit, Lord. Help us to be good stewards of this revelation. We thank you for the privilege of revelation, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, anytime we start a new book, uh, we have to give an introduction and a little bit of a background and a setting. This is written by the Lord Jesus's half brother James. Uh, it's been said in certain circles that these weren't that he didn't ha- Jesus didn't have brothers and sisters; that they were listed as his cousins. But that's that's just trying to get out of the fact that Mary had other children after Jesus. Uh, the fact is, Jesus had brothers. And we're told in Mark chapter 13, and or M- Matthew chapter 13 rather, and Mark chapter six, that Jesus had at least four brothers and were given their names. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And we know Judas as Jude. He wrote the book of Jude that we're gonna be studying Uh, in a few weeks or months, and so I want to give you kind of a realistic picture of the family from which James and the Lord Jesus came, because that will help us understand James as we read through, through this book, because he's writing from a perspective. All of us have backgrounds. We just heard Mike give his background. We all have backgrounds from which we came. God used certain relationships. He used certain of situations and circumstances to mold us and to shape us, we forget that how the Lord uses us in many ways reflects some of that background. And so, as we come to know the Lord, sometimes it's it's easy to forget. Uh, when we first come to know him, we remember, but it's over time it's easy to forget that that God was involved in our past before we even came to know Him. You start realizing how 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 his fingerprints are all over everything before we came to know him. He was leading us to a certain destination. He was guiding us to a certain uh, uh, area of of life or a certain place in life to where we would humble ourselves and, and submit ourselves to him. The Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts that Jesus is the answer, compelling us that the cross is the right decision. That's what we pray for when we pray for lost Loved ones, And so James is coming from a certain perspective. We're also told in those verses that he had sisters. So that at least means that he had two. He could have had more. But we know that he had at least two sisters. So when we look at the, the family that, that Jesus came out of and, and James is his, his brother there, they came, it was a, ch- a house of at least seven kids. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, when they came to give the offering for, for Mary and so forth, and dealing with Jesus' birth and her purification and all of that, that they offered two turtle doves. And that was allowed in the law if you couldn't afford to bring another sacrifice that, that had you know, a greater value. So they were poor. This is a blue-collar family, so to speak. A uh, Joseph was a blue-collar worker. They were a poor family. So they, were, they didn't have like an eight-bedroom home, probably. They lived in small quarters, and it was a poor family. So you have this picture being painted by the Spirit that Jesus was raised in a home that was poor, that had lots of kids, that was in close quarters, and there was a lot of things going on. Now, we're told in the passages that James is always listed first. He was probably the next one born after the Lord Jesus which was likely, uh, likely reveals that they, of course, living in close quarters anyway, were probably at least in the same room together, maybe with maybe a couple other boys or at least one other boy. So James is very close to the Lord Jesus. I've, I'm telling you that I really firmly believe that, that, that James was closer to the Lord Jesus and understood the Lord Jesus probably better than any of his disciples in some ways, not all, of course. In some ways he knew the Lord Jesus a lot better. So in this cramped, poor household, James was there being raised. Can you imagine being raised and, and have the Lord Jesus as your brother? How many times has he heard, why can't you be more like Jesus? Oh man, it's like, the guy never sinned. And you know what he thought. I, I just know humanity. I know myself. You're probably thinking as a sibling, you're probably thinking, well yeah, he's, he just hides it. You know, just like Mike talked about, you do it in secret. There's no way this kid could be so perfect. You know, it's my older brother. He probably did it in secret. I don't know what went through his heart. But as you look at the book of James and you see what came forth from his heart by the Spirit, these writers weren't just robots writing and dictating what the Holy Spirit said. It was intertwined with their experiences and their background and what they went through. And so you can't de- separate James's background of being raised with the Lord Jesus from this book that he wrote. It's very clear. One of the things that the book of James is <laughs> is known for is its clarity. You don't have to worry about where James is, what he's thinking. He doesn't beat around the bush. You cannot find James beating around the bush on any subject matter in this, in this general epistle of, of James. He just doesn't do it. He's just to the point. I love those type of people. Sometimes. Many times I don't. I have close friends. I've, of course, given them freedom to just speak right into my life and I love the clarity of the, of the compliments or the encouraging things, but I don't necessarily enjoy the clarity of the exhortation and the, hey, bub, what do you think you're doing? You know, or what, uh, you, you need to redirect your thinking or whatever. They have total freedom to speak that into my life. And that's what the Lord uh, Jesus inspires his brother by the Spirit to say, He says very clear things. I think it's important for us, especially as this world gets worse and worse and worse. I was thinking this week that our own personal holiness is its own protection. It protects us from so many things. And, And the tendency as this world gets worse and worse and worse, the tendency or the temptation at least for us believers is to lower our standards, to become more and more like the world. And and there's pressure on us to do that. But I think, of course, any time at any point in human history, God's always trying to make us more and more like Christ, make us more and more holy. But especially as things get worse and worse and worse, that holiness becomes its own protection against the things of this world and the deception that we find there. So here James is, and he gives so much clarity. And just to get a little bit technical on you for a moment, there's these types of verbs that are called imperative verbs. They're commands. In English, when we command something, we have to use our tone of voice or we actually have to use verbiage that communicates that we're commanding someone to do something. We have to say, I command you to pick up your clothes and put them in the hamper. Or we do it with our voice or our tone of voice. They don't have to do that in Greek. They can use a certain ending on a verb and it communicates that it's a command. There's 50 of those at least in the book of James. One out of every two verses in the book of James has this type of verb that is an imperative verb. There, so he's just he's very direct. He's very blunt with us, but there's still so much gentleness and grace inside the book. And a lot of people don't talk about that, and it's it's sad. But there is a lot of grace. But he just heads. He just declares and comes against so strongly compromise and hypocrisy and favoritism and all these things that militate against religiosity and churchianity. He's just be real. Be be the authentic, uh, genuine article. Don't go through the motions. Jesus had so much, and I believe many of this. A lot of this comes from James's exposure to the Lord Jesus and his in his impatience with. Uh, religious hypocrisy and acting he hated it Jesus's temper came forth it really only in those times where he would see hypocrisy he was so gracious with the common people and sinners and being gracious with people but when it came to religious hypocrisy those that misguide people and and lead people the wrong direction he he had a very short uh, temper when it was related to, to those types of things so there's incredible content in this book. He alludes to content that's in, the, in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount at least 15 times where he talks about the blessed life of being obedient to God. And we talk about belief, we talk about having faith, but so often we leave out obedience. Obedience is very important to God and how our lives are assessed. We assess our lives by what we know so often and not by what we're doing and what our actions are Peter wrote in his epistle, one of his epistles, that he would always have a reminder of the things that he wrote to his recipients because he knew that we can forget. But also, at any given time, I may not not be obeying a certain set of verses. Yeah, when I first heard it or when I heard it the first 40 times, I was obeying in that area. But now when I heard it again at this time in my life, I'm not obeying it very much. I need to hear it over and over again. There's humility in the book too. James doesn't refer to himself as the half-brother. As we'll see, he begins the book by referring to himself as a bondservant. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I, would, I would make sure everybody knows. Christians can name drop with the best of them. Have you noticed that? You know, I would say, I you know, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into our verses... We need to understand that obedience to God's word is more important to the Lord Jesus than his earthly family in those relationships. We're told in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50 this. While he was still talking to the disciples, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is, he answered this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples, us. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He de-emphasized his earthly relationship and emphasized his true family are those that obey his word. And that's important for us to know. Here, James is his, his half-brother, but he, James knew that in reality he was closer to the Lord Jesus in the, in the sense of being his disciple than he ever was, have, you know, his half-brother. I mean, think about how weird it would be. James had his half-brother in his heart. I mean, that's strange to think about. He was a lot more than just his half-brother, of course. But he had his half-brother in his heart, and, and James identified with Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord, far greater than his half-brother. And so that's important for us as we go through the book. Just a quick overview of the chapters. Chapter one is about mature Christians being patient in trials. Chapter two is mainly about Christians obeying the word of God, not just hearing it. We're told in chapter three that mature believers watch their tongue, ouch. And chapter four, that Christians make peace, not trouble. And then finally chapter five is about mature believers being engaged in prayer. And so lots to be convicted over. Amen? Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to not being the only one that's convicted related to this book. There's a lot here, and it requires us to be open and teachable and humble and have our hearts pliable before the Lord. So it begins in in verse 1. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting so again he identifies his name James this is what you would do at the beginning of a letter they wouldn't have envelopes with the person's name on the outside they had these in scroll form so you would write who the, who's writing the letter at the beginning of the scroll so you wouldn't have to undo the whole scroll to see who wrote to you so he identifies himself James and he says a bond servant of God what's a bond servant in the Jewish history uh, in their history if you owed so much money and you couldn't pay it back you could sell yourself into slavery to another Jew and after seven years, you were supposed to be released. And if you decided that you loved that master and they treated you the best that you could possibly imagine, you want to make it permanent, you could make arrangements for that. And you would go down to the, to the gate of the city and they would drive an, uh, uh, an awe through your ear and you would have an earring that would identify your, you with that master. And then what you were saying is that I am willfully becoming a slave. You're saying that uh, it's for life, it's permanent. And, and, the, and that, that master is someone that you want to be identified with. That's the picture. So for our purposes, it's a willing slave. And that's what he's saying. I'm not, he's not just my half-brother. He, I'm a willing slave of who? God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So we're told in many places in the book of Acts that the disciples were scattered and he uses the vernacular of explaining or explaining it in a way where it's like seed being broadcast or, or scattered. And, and so here they'd already, this gives us a clue into what, the, what they're dealing with. They're dealing with persecution in many ways. They're scattered all over the place. And this is a general epistle. It wasn't written just to one church, as we've seen up to this point. This is a general epistle to all believers, of course, but he's talking to these Jewish believers, specifically that are scattered all over the world at that time, and he greets them. He doesn't say grace and peace like Paul uh, has, as we've seen. He says the typical greeting, greetings to you there. And then he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Okay, so we get to the subject of, of trials, and that could be, oh, great, now what are we going to have to learn about? I'm going through so many trials, I don't want to think about trials, or I just came out of a trial. And that's, It's been said that you're either about to go into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're, you're going going into one soon, or just coming out, you know what I mean, before, during, and after there. And so trials are difficult. There's no way around it. And the main point of this morning is he's trying to get across that we need to not despise them, to let them have their work uh, that God intended in our lives to be accomplished. You know, because when we go through, what if we go through a sickness or we go through a loss of our job or we go through, there's so many different ways that we can go through trials. I mean, Jesus said in this life, you will face persecution, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. We'll face tribulation rather. I have overcome the world. So he he didn't tell us that we would be spared from it. And we look at people that we respect that are spiritually mature and we want to be like them. But what we don't realize is what did they go through to get like that? That's what we don't know. That's what we don't think about. Usually the saints that we know that are super godly or an example to us and we just want to be like them. They have a long history with God of going through difficult, very painful times. I think of Pastor John Corson, who pastors up in Applegate, the Calvary Chapel up there in Applegate, Oregon there. He's been pastoring for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. I don't, I don't know how long it's been. What, what an incredible testimony he has of God's faithfulness of going through difficult times one day he got a call and his wife would, was killed in a car accident. I mean, I can't even imagine that, going through that. And he's there and, and Pastor Chuck gives him a call and encourages them and prays with them and helps, gives a, just a very specific word that he needed to hear at that time. And then a few years go by and then his daughter dies in a car accident at the age of 16. And she loved the Lord, and she was memorizing revelation. I mean, she had all these incredible things in her life that were going well, and she was growing spiritually, and that happened. And you, you think about it, and you think, why? Why would God allow that? Why would God allow someone that is doing so much for the kingdom of God to go through that kind of pain? Is it because God deserted him or doesn't love him? I mean, all those things he could have been tempted to think about. All of us could. Why would God allow that? You know, and, and so with related to trials, there are things that we live in a fallen world, first of all. That's, that's the basic reason why a lot of things go the way they go in, in this world. We live in a fallen world. And God hasn't is, promised to deliver us from everything, but he has promised to deliver us through everything. And that requires some perseverance, and that requires some great some character, and, and he knows what we can handle and he gives us these little things at first sometimes and then he gives us some bigger things and then even bigger than that. It's almost like when, when we're training our kids, you know, we give them a little bit of difficulty with something and see how they do and then they do a little bit better and then we give them something that's a little bit more difficult. We see how they, how they do and they get stronger and stronger and before you know it, they're, they're tackling things that even we can't do because of the training, because of the strengthening, and so forth. And so he says here in the verse, notice he says, count it all joy. First of all, what's joy? There's a difference between joy and happiness. We need to know that, first of all. Happiness is, is circumstance-based. It's based on what's going on in my life. I may like what's going on in my life at the moment, and so I'm happy. And, but the joy is entirely different, especially for the believer. Joy is related to my my, my relationship with God and the things that are true related to my relationship with him that circumstances cannot affect. That's why no matter what we go through, and we go through hardly anything compared to so many of our brothers and sisters around this world. Honestly, I mean, just speak candidly. It's the truth. But he doesn't minimize what we go through because to us it's just as difficult as what other people go through in some respects. And so he doesn't minimize those things. But joy is kind of that delight that we have related to our relationship with him that doesn't change. You know, you think about Paul and Silas in prison. They're there in stocks. Their legs are spread as far as they can go. Their arms are spread and they're stuck there. And it's late at night and they're starting to worship the Lord. Now, I doubt that one of them had that idea, or both of them had that idea at the same time. One of them, probably Paul, said, let's worship the Lord. He's worthy of our worship, regardless if we're stretched out like this. Let's worship. And so they started worshiping the Lord. And as it's been said, the Lord started tapping his foot, liking what they were doing. And there was an earthquake, and they were released. Now, not all trials end up with a jailbreak. You know, sometimes there's the delivering through the situation. There's plenty of believers right now incarcerated. that They're singing and singing and singing, and they're not getting released. So God doesn't deal with everybody exactly the same way, except in the sense that whatever he allows to come their way is best for their walk. It was best for Paul and Silas and what God was doing for them to be released at that time. But there were other times when Paul wasn't released. Especially this last time that he was in prison, he was beheaded and so forth. So first of all, joy is that calm delight that we have that's based upon our relationship with him. We could be completely unhappy and still have the joy of the Lord. And if you don't know that, let me encourage you to to meditate upon that. Because God will show you what that looks like and and to encourage yourself in him. And so he says, count it all joy. The word uh, count there means to calculate in the book of Romans, sometimes we see it in the form of... In our translation is reckon. You know, the people in the South love that. But it's not the same, really the same thing. It's a little bit similar. But to calculate. So he's saying calculate your trial as a as something that's a benefit to you based on your relationship with Jesus. Count it as a benefit. Because he's going to be talking about the benefits of it in a moment. So it's, it's kind of like... Yeah, I don't feel that way. My emotions are all over the place. But as an act of faith and as an act of worship, I am seeing my circumstances through the prism of his word. And his word says that he does all, allows these things in my life to make me more like Christ. And so I'm calculating that that's true. And I'm honoring God with my faith in his word, regardless of what my circumstances say, regardless of what my emotions and my mind say, regardless of what anyone in my family says. To the contrary, I'm choosing to believe what his word says about my situation and trusting him and honoring him with my faith. That's what counting all joy means. And so he says, when you fall into various trials, I like to fall out of some trials. I don't know about falling into them, but he says when you fall into various trials, and I like the word various because that includes a lot of different ways that I could be in a trial, which means that his purpose for allowing it and the blessing associated with it is true on many different types of trials, not just when I'm sick or not just when I lose my job or not just when someone betrays me in my family. There's many different ways that he can be faithful in accomplishing his purposes in my life when I go through these things, regardless of the kind of trial that it is. And then he gets to the purpose in verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The first thing we need to know about this verse is that the word knowing means to know by experience. It's our old word, gnosko, where we get our word knowledge from and so forth. It's knowing by experience. It's not the realm of the theoretical. How many times have you talked to someone who's single, who's talking and telling you and instructing you on marriage? <laughs> like, yeah. You just tell me all about marriage right now, because that's not knowledge by experience. When you've been married a little while, then you can tell me a little bit about marriage. But he says, knowing by experience that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, the word testing was used to describe how they would purify metals or they would heat up metal and and make it a certain shape. And then when it would harden, it would become stronger than before. So he's saying a faith that is worth having is worth being tested. We want our faith to be beautiful, but we just don't want it to be tested. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you. I don't want my faith to be tested. I want God just to say, yeah, it's a mature faith. I'm just saying that it's mature, and I'm never going to test it for you or for anyone else to see. That's what I want. I don't know about you if you're the same way. But he says, no, any faith that's worth having is worth testing. And so we, you know, we're, we're kind of shaky when it comes to that. But he doesn't say, knowing that the testing of your emotions or your mind or your thinking produces patience. He says that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this is hard for us because we usually associate having patience with something that we don't want. Like in other words, I'm forced into having patience when something happens to me that is unpleasant. So why would I have patience as the goal when it only happens when bad things happen to me? He's saying there's value in the patience in and of itself, and it's going to produce something in our lives it is the goal we don't see that it is the goal for us and God's going to make sure that we go through certain things to where where we have patience produced in in our lives because the effects of patience in a life is those are very profound what does patience produce when you see a patient person what is usually a characteristics of their life as well They're usually gracious they usually can put up with a lot. I know that means patience or whatever, but they, they, they have a long fuse, so to speak. They don't usually fly off the handle and express rage. They're usually very peaceful people. They're usually walking in the power of God. They're usually um, uh, disciplined in many ways because they've had patience accomplish its work in their lives. Can you imagine the patience that James saw in the Lord Jesus's life? Can you imagine that? How many times did James try to get Jesus to fly off the handle? You know, when you're a kid, you try to get your, I mean, I was, I was the youngest of seven. So I'm, I'm right in there with this family of seven here with seven kids. I was the the baby. Many of you know that you can, you know, like, yeah, I can see that. And, And what you do, what you do as a sibling is you, your, your siblings are just entertainment in many ways. They're just there for you to be entertained by. How can I push them? This is all car- carnal. I'm, I'm recognizing that. I'm just not saying that's spiritual. But you're, you know, how can I irritate them? Push them to the limit. My sisters, one, they kept threatening to not talk to me ever again because I would, what I would do to them this is like in first grade. And that worked. I, it put the fear in me. Like, oh, my sisters are never going to talk to me again. That's going to be weird living in this home when they're never talking to me. And then I realized, they can't do that. They have to live in this house. They have to deal with me. So then I called them on it. Of course, they had to change their their tactics or whatever. But, I mean, I don't know what they did as kids in the same bedroom there, same bunk bed or whatever. Because James, as a kid, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. So he's a little bit outnumbered there. And, and so can you imagine the patience? And you you might say, well, all of that didn't really happen in Jesus' life until his public ministry. No, he was who he was the whole entire time. When Jesus was baptized, the father spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't started his public ministry yet. And he's saying, I'm already well pleased with his life. You know, and so here he was patient all growing up. And so all these things we want more of, right? We want to be more gracious. We want to be more loving. We want to be, have more peace in our lives. Well, that, that's accomplished in, in large part by the patience that God produces through enduring the things that we have to go through. The word patience at the end of verse 3 literally means enduring. Some translations even list it as endurance. So it's not just having patience for a moment. It's a long-term endurance there. That's what having our faith tested does. We need to see patience as the GPS, so to speak, to get us to that place of maturity and patience will accomplish that. Now notice in verse four, James tells us God's ultimate motivation for allowing the work of patience in our lives. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience in our lives has work to do. And we we can resist it. Notice he says the word let. Let patience have its work. That means that I cannot, it's possible to not let patience have its work. And that's, we can all identify that in some way because when we go through certain trials, sometimes we resist the, the whole, just the even idea that God may be allowing this in our lives for our good. We don't even want to think about what we're going through. But he says you need to let. He's telling us to do something here. Let it have its perfect work. Don't fight against it. And I know that's easy to say. And maybe you're here in a a significant trial right now. And you're saying, that's easy for you to say, you're not going through what I'm going through. You have no idea what I'm going through. You're right, I don't. But the Lord Jesus does. And there's nothing that you're going through that he hasn't already gone through or worse. And so he has grace for that. He's not going to waste anything that you're going through to make you more mature, and so the, 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 what he doesn't want us is to resist it, to get bitter against him, and to walk in disobedience. So many believers, when they go through a trial, or too often, I should say, believers, they go into disobedience. And, and, and that's missing the mark. And, and he's going to discipline us. If that's the case. And we don't want, we want curtain number one. We don't want curtain number three. We don't want the zonky or whatever it's called the, the, that's in the third uh, curtain there, the, the, the other option that, That is not his first choice for us. So we think if only this trial wasn't here, I would be complete and not not lacking anything. But he says, no, that's not the case. You'll lack something if you don't go through it. That's good for us to hear, right? We think that we're we're complete if we don't go through it. He's saying you're not going to be complete unless you go through it. We have to go through these things because they're part of what brings us into maturity. And so he knows that, that uh, uh, our, our faith needs to be tested. That produces a mature faith. And, and it's impossible for our walk with the Lord to grow into maturity without testing. Again, children, training them up. You give them a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And what the end product or the, the, the result of that is a beautiful life that God molds or when you lift weights you 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 lift a little bit you know heavier weight a little bit heavier weight a little heavier weight but you don't just lift try to lift the 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 biggest weight or the heaviest weight right away you have to build up to it and so God has so much grace for us as we go through these things he says it has a perfect work and you need to be complete lacking nothing God doesn't want us to lack anything he doesn't want us lacking what's important and he knows what's important. Every child that's immature demands certain things, thinking that those things are important and they're incomplete without them. When in reality, we look at it and go, you are definitely not incomplete but if you don't have that thing. We give you, because we love you, we give you what's important, what you need. And later on, as we grow up, we see that, that, that our parents knew what they were doing. Now, in verse 5, James gets to how to secure wisdom. Look at me there. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he starts with, if anyone lacks wisdom. Now, we think that this is just a general principle, which it is. If anyone lacks wisdom, he says to do these things. But the context is talking about going through a trial. And when you're going through a trial, there's so many decisions that you have to make, right? When you're going through something difficult, there's decisions that come up. And we have to make these decisions sometimes pretty quickly. And we can't look to first trial, chapter 14, and look up the specific instruction for us and know the answer. Or we can't go to a a pastor or leader and say, you know, what should I do? Should I do this or should I do that? There's no verse for that. So the pastor can't, there's no mediator between God and man except Christ. So he can say, well, pray, and here's, here's the verses to ask God. You can hear God's voice for yourself, and so you have to do that. And so God will give us that wisdom, but it's really important in the middle of a trial to have God's wisdom, and he knows it. And that's why he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. As a pastor, I've asked people that are going through trials that have asked for prayer for wisdom if they've already prayed and asked God for wisdom. And probably more than 50% say no. And so that's what God wants us to, to think about is that that should be our default setting. That's, that's what we should do first is go to God and ask. And, and so often we, we, we want God to direct us that we don't ask. And he wants to show us very specific things. But notice he says, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. This is important for us, especially for those of us that have a past where we have walked in condemnation about our failures with our walk with the Lord or we're always aware and beating ourselves up about how we fail in our walk with the Lord. When we're going through a trial, especially if it's self-induced, you know, we can think that God's not for us and he's not a loving father like he really is. God doesn't, doesn't compare. He, he can't compare among equals like we can, as it's been said. So we, com- we compare how people are with how God is or how our father was or is with how God is. And we think that somehow God's the same and God's so much greater than our, our earthly father's. So he's, what he's trying to get accomplished here in this verse 5 is that don't when you come to God and you ask for wisdom in the context of a trial or any time, you need to recognize that God is imploring you to be aggressive with it. To, to know the person that you're asking is a certain type of person. He's a loving father. He's not stingy with his wisdom. Oh, you know, I gave you wisdom last week, buckaroo. Buckaroo. You know, you're not going to get any more wisdom this week. You tapped me out for this week. You just asked me five days in a row for wisdom. There's no way I'm going to give you any more wisdom. He doesn't, he doesn't hold back the wisdom. He's not a finite amount of wisdom with him. And he only has so much for us and then so much for another person in the body of Christ and so forth. He just gives it liberally. He just, it just flows from him. Wisdom just flows. And one of the things that gets passed up is when in this verse when, when he says, and without reproach. What does that mean? What does it mean he gives without reproach? Reproach means disapproval or disappointment. And maybe our earthly fathers, anytime we came to them, all we felt or sensed from them is disapproval or disappointment all the time in an unfair way. That's not who God is. God doesn't begrudgingly talk to us ever. He loves to talk to us. He doesn't think about all our failures and our long list of shortcomings every time we come to him. He's not begrudgingly, okay, I'll talk to them, you know, or coming with disapproval or disappointment. He says, no, that's not who our God is. He's a loving Father who comes and gives liberally. And he's coming enthusiastically as we come to him uh, uh, with wisdom to our lives. That's important. Notice he says all there in the verse, who gives to all liberally. He doesn't say, there's some people I give this this much to and other people I kind of hold back. You may think you're the exception, that God gives liberally to everybody except me because of my background or what I deal with or what I struggle with. No, he says he gives no partiality there. He gives to all liberally. Maybe that's specifically for someone here this morning. We are required to ask by faith. Look at verse six. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea." Driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is really the first time that we see James being clear. You know, not beating around the bush. Okay, James, tell us how you really feel. Uh, he's very clear, and, and and it is important. We those that approach God need to believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. We need to, we, that's a that's a. Basic uh, prerequisite for coming to him. And, and, and what I, how I want to apply this related to, remember, this is related to approaching God in prayer for wisdom in the context of a trial or, or, or any time, but especially during a trial. What's the faith here? What's he's, how does this apply? How do, I, how do I know what he's talking about? I have faith that he exists. I have faith that when I pray, he hears me. I have, I have faith in all these things, but is that what he's talking about? I believe, he, I believe he's talking about those things, but I also believe he's talking about faith that God will give me the wisdom that he said. That's what he's talking about. Why would God inspire James to write, if anyone lacks wisdom, God's going to give it liberally and without reproach, and then think when I ask him, he, he, I'm not going to receive it. Have you ever seen anyone in the Bible struggle to hear God's voice? Or let me rephrase that. Have you ever seen in the Bible God struggle to communicate to someone? In the Old Testament, do you ever see anyone struggling to hear from him? Do you ever see anyone, there's Gideon and the, you know, the, the, the fleeces and all that, but I mean, generally speaking, do you see anyone struggling to, have, to hear God's direction? That is not a trial that God goes through, getting through to us. He, we will hear what he wants us to do. We have to believe that he's going to do it. And so when I ask God, I need to leave it, and I'm not saying you can't keep asking, he tells us to keep approaching him and so forth, but we need to have faith that he is going to, ultimately give me that wisdom. The problem is he doesn't tell me when. He doesn't say when he's going to give this wisdom. He just says he's going to give it. And so often he will not give us the certain wisdom because we would act on it prematurely. We think, oh, he showed me what to do. I'm just going to jump and start doing things, I mean, and start getting, getting going with something and there's a timing issue to it. So his, his silence and the wait type feel that we get or sense that we get is many times protection for us because he knows we'll act on something prematurely. And then when the right time comes, he reveals the wisdom. How many of us in our personal walk have sought wisdom, especially in a trial, he doesn't reveal it. And then there comes a point in time where I absolutely need to have it. And at the, in the last moment, he gives us that wisdom. Yes, he loves to do it. It keeps us dependent upon him. Sometimes he will give us wisdom, and he'll say that's for three months from now. And he gives us the grace to not act on it until then. Or we see it's obvious that we shouldn't act on it or so and so forth. But he doesn't say when he's going to give it, but we need to have faith that he's going to give it. If you're a parent here today, and your child needs wisdom, and they're, they're in a trial, they're in something very difficult, and you've told them to ask any time and you'll give wisdom, are you going to withhold it when that your child really needs it? well, our father has greater love for us than we could ever have for our kids. Don't doubt that he's going to give you that wisdom. He said, my sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice, and I call to them, and they answer. They, he, we hear his voice as his children. Very important for us to know that. I want to give us a precautionary or a preemptive um, kind of mindset for, to prepare us for trials. And I want, to, I want to read Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 through 27. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have, not, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I declare to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great, the last five words, and great was its fall. That's a very familiar story that that we recognize from the Lord Jesus. But it's great to bring the Lord Jesus' teaching of this into what we're learning here because he describes a trial, right? The storm that comes. He doesn't say if it comes, he says when. Even in James, in our passage, it says when we face various trials, not if. So it's going to happen. And how do we prepare for a trial before we get into it? We prepare for trials and the storms that are coming by not just hearing God's word, but obeying it. I've walked with the Lord for 23 years now. Some of you have walked with the Lord a lot longer, some a lot less, but I've seen a lot of things in 23 years. And as in, and in leadership for many of those years, I've seen those in the body of Christ that live a life generally obedient to God. And then I've seen people that generally live a life of disobedience to God. And I've, then I've seen those same people go through pretty incredible trials. And it's uncanny the difference between those two lives. The ones that have built their life upon a rock by obeying Jesus' words their house stands in ways that are far more profound than I could even describe to you today that I'm coming into the situation as a pastor and they're going through something and I'm there to help support them and I am leaving built up and encouraged and strengthened far more than they they were I mean that I it's like they were doing the ministering I was there for them to 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 help them but they were they came to that situation with with an understanding that God was already in control and helping them and strengthening them and so forth. And they were asking how I could be prayed for. And, like, wait a minute, look what you're going through. I mean, not that I want to, you know, give them faith, you know, under, undermine their, their faith or courage, but you almost think sometimes, are you really being real? I mean, is this just an act? Are you just going through the motions? Are you in denial? I mean, you're thinking about all those things, and they're really just. Not that they don't have emotions going all over the place. Not that they're, they're, they're not asking for prayer. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about their faith is sound. And their trust is intact related to the Lord. Then I go to someone else's situation and their whole life is, is spiritually speaking, is, is, is in shambles because they haven't preemptively protected themselves by building their lives upon a rock by obeying God's word. And that's that's an encouragement for us. If you're obeying the Lord right now, and you're doing your best to obey him, obviously none of us are perfect, but generally speaking, you're going the right direction. You are preparing for tomorrow's trials. You are preparing for what's going to happen in the future. Your house will stand. But if you're not then you're not preparing for that coming trial. Again, when the storm comes, not if, when the storm comes. None of these things, uh, you know, seen properly and with our proper obedience and so forth does not mean that we're not going to be dependent upon the body of Christ. Again, I want to make that abundantly clear. Just because you count things all joy the way that you're supposed to doesn't mean that you're not going to need prayer, you're not going to need to reach out to the rest of the body of Christ He knows that that's built into all of it in terms of enduring certain things. And so it's important for us to see that preemptively that's what we can do. Now in verses 9 through 11, he gives instructions to the rich and the poor. He says, "'Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, "'but the rich in his humiliation, "'because as a flower of the field he will pass away. "'For no sooner has the sun risen.'" "...with a burning heat, then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits." Giving perspective here. The, the poor, they're accepted into God's kingdom equally as someone that's rich. And they're being exalted. He talked about in the... In the this is one of the, the areas where he kind of references the principles that are in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, right? The Poor in spirit. So he's saying rejoice. See, both of these types, groups of people are supposed to rejoice. They're supposed to be full of joy and glory. And so here the, the, the poor person has been given everything spiritually. Now they're wealthy. Now God's given them the capacity to be in, uh, have a relationship with them, with him. And, and so they're supposed to glory in how God's exalted them in that sense. But the rich, they're, they're brought to humiliation, in the sense of being humbled you recognize that what I have is not my own I'm not trusting in uncertain riches anymore and and that all these all this wealth is going to fade away and my supreme pursuit over you know after wealth has left now as a believer and so I'm 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 I can glory in that I can glory how God's brought me low in the sense of of that humility that he's given me and and not trusting in those certain riches and he says those that are rich are going to Their pursuit and all of those things are going to pass away. Just like those flowers that come up in Israel, they they don't last very long. Those springtime flowers, they fade because of the heat of the day. He's saying, just like the heat of the day fades those flowers and they pass away, so will those that pursue riches uh, to the neglect of their relationship with him. And so, again, great, great clarity as we would expect from James. Very excited about getting into how to deal with temptation. Next week, and uh, we just began this great book, and very excited about what the Lord has for us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word and all that's in it. Lord, help. I first of all pray anyone that's in a trial right now, I pray, Lord, that you'd bring encouragement, that you love them, that you care about every need that they have, and that you're not going to waste any of these things. And that you're going to use these things for your purposes in their life, Lord. When I do pray for uh, healing or deliverance or finances or whatever it is that they're going through, Lord. I, I just pray that you would minister to them, Lord. And I pray that you'd help all of us to welcome trials as hard as it is, Lord, for us. Help us to welcome those things and see those things as that which... Is going to make our faith stronger and to be more mature. Help us, Lord, to not to let you accomplish these things in our lives and not fight you on these things. I thank you, Lord, that you produce godly character in our lives. I thank you that you produce patience in us. And thank you that you want us complete, not lacking anything, God. We are grateful for that. And help us to help one another as we're going through different trials to to be Uh, comforting and encouraging and prayerful in one another's lives, Lord. Thank you for the family that you brought together here. We are so grateful, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.